All right. Hey, I would like to ask you if you have your Bibles to open them to Exodus 20. Yes, ma'am. Oh, at this time, the children are dismissed to go to children's church. There they go. Woo! That feels good. Yeah. Ages four to seven, I think, right? Okay. Let's start over. I would like to ask you if you would to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. If there is a Bible app event for this, if you have a Bible app from Life Church on your phone, you can look for an event near you and all the scripture will be there this morning. But Exodus 20 is where we're getting most of the scripture from. Most of the scripture from. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. We're actually finished with them. And this is kind of like a look back at the Ten Commandments and the lessons that we've learned from it. And one of the things we learned is that the Ten Commandments kind of function as a guidebook, kind of like that thing in your car. You know, I, I, I got the manual for my new car and it had like 300 pages in it. Who's reading that stuff, you know? Uh, but the Ten Commandments is a far less, far fewer pages than that and uh, has great guidance in it. I can remember, uh, when I started ministry, it was about the same time that Joel Bubna started ministry. Joel was a MK who became a missionary and uh, has been in pastoral ministry as well, I believe. He happened to be at Countersport, and I was at Bradford. And this is how I remember the story. Joel, I can't imagine you're listening. If I got this wrong, tough. This is how I remember it. Uh, but I uh, just want to kind of share with you uh, this incident that he had when he was hunting. Joel was a city boy, and uh, he was overseas as well. I think he was an MK. He might have been a PK, but I think he was an MK. Uh, his dad was president of the Alliance for a while anyway. But he was a city boy, and um, he'd never really been hunting. And so he moved to Countersport, Pennsylvania. And there's two things you can do in, in Countersport, Pennsylvania. You can hunt, and you can watch the snow. That's pretty much it. You know, there's not a lot going on there. And so he enjoyed hunting up there. Uh, well, he, he didn't enjoy it. He was getting ready. Everyone enjoyed hunting up there. And they said to him, are you going to hunt deer with us this year? And he's trying to be a man of the people. And he said, okay, I don't know anything about that, but um, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. So when you hear him tell a story afterward, you know, that was, he said, I'm going to go hunting for my very first time. We were together at a meeting together. The young pastors were together, hunting for my very first time, the first of December, you know, and the first day of buck season. So we got together for the Christmas party. And I said, how'd that hunting thing go? He said, it was the stupidest thing I ever experienced. And I said, why is that? He said, because of this. He said, here's what they did. They gave me this gun. They called it a 3006. I don't even know what that is. Anybody know what that is? A 30-06, yeah. And they took me out and they dropped me off and they said, okay, wear this orange vest, stand here by this tree, and uh, we'll be back to get you later. And then they went to where they were going to go. And he said, I'm standing there. What am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing. He said, I spent the whole day standing there. I didn't have enough food, didn't have enough water, spent the whole day standing there watching squirrels. It's the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life, right? Now, what was wrong with that? What was wrong with that is that no one told him what to expect. No one told him what he was supposed to be doing, how he was supposed to prepare, how he was going to, how he was going to make those things. And I think that is probably how the children of Israel would have been, the people of Israel would have been, coming out of centuries of slavery into this desert wasteland and then eventually up to the promised land if God had not said, Here's how to handle life. Here is how to live life. And so as they're coming along, they come to this mountain. They gather around this mountain and God comes down. They actually marked off the mountain to say, don't touch the mountain because God's going to be on it. And if you touch it, it might kill you. And God comes down. And when he gets there, he gives them his law. He gives them the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. And you and I, all these thousands of years later, we're going to be reading about them. We're going to be talking about them. We've been doing that. Before Advent, we had talked about all 10 commandments. And so what I want to do with you this morning is kind of look back on that and say, don't forget the life lessons we learned. Because we learned several life lessons. From the very first commandment, we learned make God a priority in your life. I said that wrong. Did you notice it? I said make God a priority 
in your life. You know what's wrong? Make God the priority in your life. The commandment reads, if your Bible's open, in verse 3 of Exodus 20, it reads, you shall have no other gods before me. Nobody's greater than me. Don't have anyone above me. Make me the priority. That is what God is saying. And that's because he is above everything. All of creation. Nothing else compares to him. And it's as though we should automatically know that because we really should, but sometimes we don't. One of my wife's favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah chapter 40. And we read about that. We talked about that a few months ago. In Isaiah 40, the scripture says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He is above everything. Why would you have a different God before him? That would be foolish. He's not just above all of creation. He is above you and me. He is above people. The very next verse in Isaiah 40 says, he brings princes to nothing, to naught, and reduces rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. You ever worry about anything? (laughs) Do you ever worry maybe about politicians? God is above them. You ever worry about the media and the influence that they might have? God is above them. A news outlet? God is above them. An adversary, a personal adversary? God is above them. How about those crazy friends on social media? Do you ever worry about them? God is above them. And you don't have to worry because God is above them. And he's concerned about us. He's concerned about you and me. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, in in verse 7, Jesus says, when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans do because they think they will be heard for the many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Make God the priority in your life. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. The life lesson. No other gods before him. The lesson in the second commandment might be phrased this way. Put away idols. Get rid of idols. It's a long commandment. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but look at verse four. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above the earth or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down and worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Do you ever idolize anything? You know, my wife and I, we, we work together in the same, quote, office. Study at home has a computer on that wall and a computer on that wall. I sit at this computer, she sits at that computer. And as we're working together there, um, I, I happened to look around the other day and I noticed she has a little snowman on the shelf. You know, just about six inches high, this cute little artsy snowman. And I thought to myself, she had an angel there back around Christmas time. 
I wonder if those are idols. Maybe my wife is a pagan worshiping these idols, right? No, no, not at all. We don't worship those kind of idols. We don't have those kind of idols. But I will tell you, as I have told you before, I have idolized things that I shouldn't have. For example, I've idolized position. I want to have that position. I want to be that guy. That's what I want. I have idolized money and put it before important things, even the things of God. I have idolized pleasure so that I get what I want so I can enjoy it. I have idolized my family. My wife probably doesn't feel this way at all, but there have been times I have idolized her. Worship the ground she walks on, so to speak. I've idolized my children. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before, but I happen to have four grandchildren, and I have idolized them as well. Do you remember when we were talking about this? We, we kind of took a radical pr- approach to the idols. One of the first things I said was, destroy them if you can. Now, don't do that with your grandchildren, right? <laughs> and don't do something that would destroy your reputation. Don't go destroy your house. But there may be things in your life that need to be ejected from your life. Things that you need to just be rid of in order to put away idols. Now, those things that you would not want to destroy, it would be wrong to destroy. This commandment would, it would direct us to reprioritize our life, to follow the counsel of Peter. I think the King James says, but in your hearts, set aside Christ as Lord. Prioritize Christ as Lord. Reprioritize your life. I just want my heart to love the Lord God. I just want my mind to love the Lord God. I just want my, my being, my heart, my soul, my strength to love God. And I want to ditch the idols. I don't want to worship what's created. Here's the third lesson. Honor God's name. Treat it with respect. It's in verse 7. Verse 7 says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the the King James said, do not take the Lord's name in vain, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Honor it. Now, we give respect to his name by kind of monitoring our words, what we say. So we talk about, yeah, I don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. I don't want to say, OMG, Sherry, those are the cutest boots I've ever seen, right? Yeah. It's more though than just changing the letters OMG to something like off my grass, right? Uh, Yeah. Using the name of the Lord in a flippant kind of way or a disrespectful way or maybe even as a curse word, is a very common way that we do violate the heart of this command. But it's so much bigger than that. So much bigger than that. Keeping this commandment is really a matter of using his name in a way that is in keeping with his character and reflects him as he is. It's avoiding the common, the common tendency of attributing something to God that is not of God. Man, I'll tell you what, God's been really hard on me this week. He's just thrown the worst garbage at me ever. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. He's just been out to get me. No, he hasn't. That would be taking his name in vain, failing to honor his name. Or this. You know, God told me that maybe you should. (laughs) Really? 
You're speaking in his name now? You're his spokesman today? And boy, you better have that right. I think that's one of the reasons that James says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you better have it right. Because if you don't have it right, (laughs) you're misusing his name. And he will not hold guiltless the one who does that. False teaching. That's using God's name in vain. These are all things I've really heard. You cannot get to heaven unless you come to the altar in that church. Really? You know what? You can't be saved unless you're saved with this version of the Bible. Really? Was anybody saved before 1611? (laughs) You're not going to go to heaven if you haven't been baptized. Not true. It's not biblical. It's not accurate. Believing those things is bad. Teaching those things is actually taking God's name in vain because you're representing him in a way that he is not, period. But really, the way that most of us struggle with this, taking his name in vain, is by the way we live. Because we bear his name as Christians. Those first letters, C-H-R-I-S-T, that's his name, Christian. And we break this commandment when we reflect poorly upon him. If you're going to wear a Christian ball cap, Dave Clark got a bunch of us ball caps a long time ago. Remember that, Dave? I have mine. I wear it frequently. It has a huge yellow cross on it, or gold cross on it. I remember when I first saw it, I thought, ooh, boy, that's a big cross. I'm not a big cross kind of guy. I'm a little cross kind of guy. I don't know. I didn't wear it at first, but I wear it a lot more now because I like it. When I wear it and... It's happened many times. I go into the store, the clerk's an idiot. And I just give it to her, man. What is wrong with you? I just lay it out, right? Now, you know I don't do that, right? Because I know I got the hat on my head and she knows that I'm pretending at least to be a Christian. So I got to reflect well upon Jesus, right? Because I got the cross, the big cross on my hat, right? So yeah, what I've done, I just don't wear the the hat anymore. No, that's not the solution. I'm speaking of the absurd here. Whether you have the hat on or not, you bear the name of Christ. And when you behave in a way that reflects poorly upon his name, you are not honoring his name. Get it? So relevant, isn't it? These Ten Commandments. We honor him by the way we live. The fourth commandment has to do with um, <laughs> with the Sabbath. And uh, really, the life lesson is make Sabbathing a verb, you know? Do some Sabbathing. It's verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall do all your labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On that day you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals or foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath by making it holy and made it holy, set it aside. So on the Sabbath, cease striving. I want to tell you, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to discipline yourself. I can remember when Laurel and I were first married, we were in college together. Sunday night is when I did all my work because <laughs> it was due on Monday morning for class, right? Sunday nights were not a happy time in our house. Little by little, I managed to transition that work to Saturday so that Sunday was more meaningful. My daughter picked up the same thing. She just did not do work when she was in college on the Lord's Day. Why? Because she's a legalist? No, because she's intelligent. 
And so she would discipline herself ahead of time. Let's get this done so that my Sabbath can actually be a Sabbath when I can take some time to think of how God has blessed me in the past six days. Look at the good things God has done in the past six days. 17 guys were at the Thursday night Bible study at Dave's garage. 17 guys there. Man, it was a rich study. A rich study. I'm taking the Sabbath to remember how good that was. Hmm. This past week, my wife and I sat down in the basement. We put on a movie. We just watched a movie together. I'm taking the Sabbath to look back and just remember how good that was to be with her. Yesterday, I did a funeral for a complete stranger. And God allowed me to communicate his grace and love to them. And I'm just taking this Sabbath to sit back and say, wow, God, you're so good to me, allowing me to do that. Be good to them too. I know you will. You see how the Sabbath works. It's a day to rest and reflect upon all that God has done in the previous days. And it's a day to connect with God. We do that together. You know, when Eric came up here with that Steeler jersey on, I felt a heart connection to him like I don't know that I've ever felt before. It's not true. I would dare to say there are some of you here that are Steeler dislikers. You don't hate them, but you don't like them, all right? But that, get your hand down, Brian. But that didn't disconnect you from Eric as he prayed at all. Because on this Sabbath, we connect together in prayer. We connect together in worship. We connect together in hearing the word. And we are blessed and God is honored. You know, years ago, I have heard, I never experienced this myself. Years ago, I've heard that the old Alliance people didn't allow the kids to play and get their bikes out on the Sabbath. You wore that white shirt all day because it was a Sabbath, and you were not going to be running around and playing. I don't mean to be disrespectful to that generation, but they were wrong because the Sabbath is a day to find joy in God and to connect with him and to celebrate all his goodness from the past six days. When you Sabbath regularly, you're blessed and God is honored. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. It's in verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Let me just tell you some quick ways to honor your father and mother. If your father and mother is still available to you, you understand what I mean by that? Then pay attention. Pay attention while I'm talking to you. Number one, give them time and attention. Look into their eyes. Look into their eyes. Talk to them. Listen to them. Give them time and attention. You know, <laughs> when, when my son was in college and I call him, this is what I hear. You get what? What? Right? You know, I love this. He calls me now, right? I love that attention and that time. Number two, care for them as they age. All of us probably know aged people who need assistance, who have healthy adult children nearby who don't help them. That is a shame. I'm going to use a word. It's despicable. It's just despicable. Cut their grass. Shovel their snow. Here's another one. Show them their value. Thank them for what they've done and who they are. Go to a nursing home. I go to a lot of nursing homes. I've visited, I've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of visits to nursing homes. 
probably one of the best things that I've ever said in a nursing home goes like this. I love coming to see you. Isn't that a cool sentence? Don't you want to hear that from anybody, right? I just love coming to see you. It's always good to see you. That's a great thing to say to your parents, to your father and mother. And here's a fourth one. Forgive them. Because they might not have done the best job they could have done as father and mother. (laughs) There's that line in Seinfeld where Jerry looks at George and says, what did your parents do to you? (laughs) Right? Yeah. You want to know how to get by that? Forgive them. For their good and for your own. Honor your father and mother. Number six, quit murdering people. (laughs) It's verse 13, you shall not murder. Now, most of us haven't had a lot of trouble with this commandment in a literal sense. At least I assume that, right? Right, yeah. But, you know, like so many other things, it's really a matter of the heart. And Jesus says it so well in the Sermon on the Mount, when in Matthew 5, 21, he says, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. You see what he's doing? He's quoting the Ten Commandments right here. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. Whoa, Jesus. You just quit preaching and started meddling there. Need to back off. <laughs> Again, I tell you that anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, which basically means you're worthless, is answerable to the court, but anyone who says you fool is in danger of the fire of hell. He's pretty serious about that, isn't he? Hmm. So this commandment is really telling us, keep a cool head. Ask the Spirit of God to produce within you the fruit of the Spirit of God, which according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's really hard to murder someone if you're doing those things. It's hard to even hate someone when you're doing those things. And choose not to hate. Choose to love. Love is a choice. You hear that sentence? Love is a choice every time. Choose to love. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, the next verse says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Number seven, honor your marriage commitments. Now, you should honor any commitment, right? If you made a commitment to buy something from someone, then you better buy it. You know, if you made a commitment to deliver something by 10 o'clock, you need to deliver it. If I made a commitment to you that I get a VHS tape to you by the end of the month and I don't come through on that, it's not a real big deal. But there's this other commitment that I made in 1982 when I said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, no matter how annoying you are, didn't put that part in. But that's what it meant. That commitment, that marriage commitment, is violated whenever adultery is on the table. So when it says in verse 14, you shall not commit adultery, It is telling you to honor marriage and honor the marriage commitment and honor marriage intimacy. Emotionally, physically, deeply, I am intimate with one person and that would be my wife, Laurel. I honor our marriage by doing that. 
I respect our marriage vows, and I respect the marriage vows of others by staying out of their marriage and allowing that intimacy to only be between the two of them. But maybe most of all, this idea of honoring the marriage commitment honors the marital purpose. The what? The purpose of marriage. Wait, the purpose of marriage? Pastor Steve, that's just to have kids, right? (laughs) No, no. I mean, that's, that's part and parcel with it, right? But the purpose of marriage is different than that. Marriage is designed to show the love, the purity, the faithfulness, and the holiness of God, of Christ and his church. And when honoring marriage, you find yourself blessed and you find that God is honored. Number eight. Is that where we are? Yep, number eight. You shall not steal. (laughs) That's a pickpocket there. By the way, let me go back to the other one. Someone said, I don't know what that picture is. Can you tell? On the left-hand side, you see there's wedding rings, and he's dropping them from one hand to the other. Just in case you were really puzzled about that, I didn't want you to lose any sleep today. This one on the right, that's a pickpocket, right? You shall not steal. It's verse 15. And you might feel like you don't have a problem here, but once again, stealing is a matter of the heart. So when it comes up, or let me say it this way, stealing often comes up when you're not trusting God. When, when maybe you're worried or panicked regarding how you're going to, how you're going to get something or pay for something or make ends meet or whatever. And, and that lack of trust of God, that panic that you allow in your heart really is, that, that's trickling down into your hand in a form of seeds of stealing. The Bible helps you with this. Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says, my God will provide all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So when you feel like, maybe I should just take this thing because I can't afford it and I really need it. I need it more than they do and I'm going to just take it. God will provide it. Do you trust him or don't you? On other occasions, stealing can come from a heart of greed. It's a matter of taking what someone else has because you feel like you need it. And Jesus says, watch out. He says in Luke 12.15, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then he says this. He says, your life does not consist of the things you possess. It doesn't. But if you think it does, then greed is at your doorstep. What does your life consist of? You might say that this commandment is a matter of trusting God for all you need and setting aside greed by finding satisfaction in what he's given you. Yeah. Did you ever see someone who stole another man's wife? <laughs> that goes back to the previous one. And did, did you ever look and say, the wife he had was pretty. Why did he do that? He allowed those seeds of greed to take root. And the damage was done. This is about setting aside greed and even setting aside worry. Number nine. Number nine. No worthless words. This was my favorite. (laughs) No worthless words. You have no idea how many times I've been in a small group or just hanging around with a few people and someone started to tell a story and they went, wait a minute, that's worthless words, forget it. And I've done it like three times. You know, I've been talking maybe to Eric or to Drew or somebody and I started, hey, you know what? I was, no, never mind. No, what was it, Pastor Steve? It was worthless words. That's what it was. I'm not gonna do that. (laughs) It's in verse 16. 
you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And sometimes we think, well, I don't have a problem with that. If I happen to be giving testimony, you know, on a court of law, I'll put my hand on the Bible and I will not give false testimony. I'm good with this one. But that is not what this command is talking about at all. This command is saying, be a person who values truth because truth is not worthless words. Truth is wholesome words. Value truth. Worthless words are often untrue and untrue words are generally worthless. Why would I want to speak worthless stuff? Why would I want to do that? I want to speak words of value, words of life, words of light. That's what I want to speak. Be a person who values truth. Be a person who honors justice because worthless words, they're often just not fair. They're unjust and unjust words are worthless. Worthless words have a slant to them that makes it seem like something that maybe it's not. Yeah, that's true. It's a little slanted, but you know, for the most part, it's true. I left out a couple key elements in the story, right? Because I wanted to look, well, you know, hmm, don't do that. Be a person who honors justice. Be a person who acts with, catch this phrase, gentle courage. Gentle courage. What I mean by that is that worthless words are often words that are spoken in cowardice behind someone's back. He's got a problem with you. Did you know what she did that? You know what I saw? I saw this the other day. And what you saw, the she, the he, the person you're talking about, they're not even in the room. Those words spoken in darkness, they're often worthless. And worthless words are often dark. If it needs to be said, have the courage to gently say it to the person's face and make doggone sure they know you're doing this out of pure, pure, gentle, compassionate, emotional even, love for them. None of this. Well, I'm saying this in love. I absolutely find that distasteful. More of this. Man, I don't know how to talk to you about this, but can I have your permission to just talk to you about this, please? It's so seldom you have to do that. So seldom. If you're the kind of person, I find myself having to do that a lot, then we need to talk. (laughs) Yeah. Here's one more. Be a person who values relationships because worthless words damage them. Worthless words burn bridges. Build bridges with your words. Use your words to build relationships. Stand clear of worthless words. Number J. I mean, number 10, (laughs) the last of the commandments. Don't covet what belongs to someone else. Remember my mom? My dad would say, oh, I wish I had that guy's fishing boat. I think he was trolling her. I think he really was baiting her because it was just so automatic. My mom would say, Glenn, that's coveting. Don't want his boat. Want one just like it. I love the humor that's there. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, it says in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I want to give you an idea how, how, to, how to avoid that. And in a sentence, it would go like this. Be joyful for their gain. Okay? Be joyful when others are blessed. Coveting is bad because I'm jealous of them. I kind of wish I had what they had, and I wish they didn't have what they had. I'd be happy to take what they have, and that's downright ugly. Ugly. (laughs) It's not easy to be joyful when another person is blessed. If the Cincinnati Bengals 
beat the Pittsburgh Steelers the next time they meet, Jeremiah will feel that he is blessed. I will struggle to have joy. (laughs) But that's all pretty trivial, isn't it? Here's where it comes home. I just got that brand new gun. I just got that brand new gun, and he got a better one. He got like the newer model. (sighs) Wish I had the newer model. You know what? Her hair looks better than mine, and we go to the same beautician. That just makes me mad. Wow. Did you see the car they got? They don't need a car like that. They got a car. That car is a waste of money. It's bad stewardship for them to have that car. Did you see their house? We used to have the biggest house on the street, but look what they're building. That's funny because somebody's building a house two doors down from me. (laughs) Yeah. You see how it's hard to be joyful when other people are blessed and you were feeling pretty good about where you were and now you don't. But it's a decision. It's a choice that you can make in the power of God. And I say that because God commands you to do it. Because in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we're good at the latter part of that, the former part, not so much. But the latter part, someone's weeping, we're very compassionate. And I'll sit there, I'll put my arm around you, I'll cry with you. But buddy, you get a better house than mine, I got a problem. Nope. Rejoice. I choose to rejoice with those who rejoice. Along the way, resist that lie (laughs) that falls in line with coveting that says more is always better. More is not always better. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has enough. Isn't that the truth? And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income, and this is meaningless. Do you ever notice that? It always just, it's just so funny when you read, not funny, it's so odd when you read in the paper that this multi-billionaire is going before a grand jury because he was engaged in some kind of fraud. Why? Why did he have to cheat? He's got so much. Why? But it's how we are. It's how we are whenever we say more is better. More is not always better. Maybe to handle this issue of coveting, and even all of these (laughs) commands, we would be wise to look at the Wisdom of the wisest man. Do you like how I said that? We would be wise to look at the wisdom of the wisest man who ever lived. When he's done with what I think is just his masterpiece. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, Now all has been heard, and this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. Keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. So those are the command-specific lessons. Can you give me a couple more minutes so I can talk to you about maybe some deeper lessons? There's only two of them. There's probably more than two, but only two I'm going to tell you. The first one is this. God gives you these commands because he loves you. Not because he's a killjoy. He gives you these commands because he loves you. Because you can live without these commandments. You can. (laughs) Countless people do all over the planet and have done so for centuries, thousands of years. You can live without these commandments, but you cannot live your best life without these commandments. You just can't. And so he gives you this instruction so you can live your best life. And and number two, here's the second one. He gives you these commandments to point you to the cross. To point you to the cross. Because you can't keep these commandments. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church in Rome in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, there's the commandments, the law. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious 
of our sin. So these commandments should have showed you, I'm not quite the person that I hoped I was. The law of God shows you that you have a need. It kind of does what C.S. Lewis' law of human nature tries to do. C.S. Lewis says two things are very evident. He says, number one, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and they can't really get rid of that idea. And number two, the second thing, that they do not in fact behave in that way. We have this idea, we ought to behave in this way, but we just don't do that. And that should drive us to say, so now what? And now what is the cross of Christ? Because it's the cross of Christ, the one who had never broken the law, Jesus, God in the flesh, the God-man, died on my behalf and on your behalf because he knew you can't keep the law. I will take the punishment for that. And if you come to me, if you turn your heart to me, you will find forgiveness. And if you walk after me, you will find transformation in life. And that's the beauty of the Ten Commandments. They point you to the cross of Christ. Hmm. Whenever you wish that you could do a better job at keeping the law of human nature or the law of God, whenever you feel that sense of guilt, like, man, I'm just not the person I thought I was, turn to the cross. Trust Christ. Find forgiveness in him and walk after him, following his leading, the leading of his spirit in your life. I want to pray that you'd be able to do that this morning. So if you're comfortable doing so, would you stand with me, please? I don't know about you, but I've absolutely loved doing the Ten Commandments. It was a great series. I, I hope it was meaningful to you. I hope that it did two things for you. I hope it showed you that God loves you. And I hope as well that it points you to the cross. Let's turn our attention there right now in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your great love for us that you showed us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your law. It is perfect, and and we love it. We love that it shows us that we need grace because we know that you have shown us grace through Christ Jesus. As our hearts have turned to him and we found forgiveness for who we are, in humility we have turned to you asking for forgiveness, and it humbles us and helps us to walk in a way that's kind of worthy of, of our calling in Christ Jesus. I pray that everyone here has turned to you, Jesus, and found the forgiveness that you offer by your death on the cross, and having turned to you, that they will follow you with all their heart. Make it so, for it's in your name we pray. Amen.